welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. As we close out 2021 and look towards 2022, we are pleased to present this mini-series of podcasts that will review key developments over the past year across a number of important geographic regions, industries, and specialisms. And we'll look ahead to consider what the next 12 months might bring. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Arbitral Insights and the next edition of our 2022 Horizon Scanning mini-series, and this time focused on construction arbitration. I'm Peter Rocha, a partner in Reed Smith's Paris office, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two team members, Vanessa Thieffry and Liam Hart, um, who are senior associates in the Paris office and the London office, respectively. Before we start getting into this, I thought it would be useful just to say a few words about the specificities of construction arbitrations, because they are a peculiar beast. And from a legal standpoint, there have been over the years an increasing number of standardized forms that exist for international projects, um, FIDIC, um, NEC, ICME. These standard forms don't necessarily make things simpler. And the reason I say that is that they are often on international projects heavily negotiated and revised, and the risk allocation is rebalanced. That, along with the idiosyncrasies of some applicable laws, and that depends on the law that's chosen by the parties, can increase complexity. Of course, construction arbitrations themselves can be quite challenging because they are complex both technically and in terms of them being fact-intensive. So that um, involves um, the challenges as well of finding the right experts and working with those experts. And of course, from a procedural point of view, the presence of multi-tiered dispute resolution clauses, which feature um, in a number of these standard forms, also bring a number of challenges because they have to be navigated, um, things like dispute adjudication board mechanisms or dispute boards. So with that sort of setting of the scene, let's now just take a journey a little bit back in the past over the last year or so before we then look into the crystal ball and look at what we think and maybe some of the themes and trends going forward into 2022. So if I now hand over to Vanessa. Thank you, Peter. Let's take a step back. Time and money are a constant preoccupation in the construction industry on projects, of course, but also in relation to the dispute avoidance or resolution processes. This leads me to the first point we have identified, the issue of the efficiency of construction arbitration. As you both know, arbitration and ADR are the most favored means of resolving disputes in the construction and energy sectors, with established arbitral institutions like the ICC even reporting that construction arbitrations historically account for approximately 40% of their caseload. However, according to the survey on driving efficiency in international construction disputes conducted by the Queen Mary University of London in 2019, arbitration is not favored dispute resolution means in the construction industry because of its efficiency, or rather, 
of its lack thereof. According to this survey, the four main perceived causes of inefficiency in construction arbitration were party tactics, arbitrators' case management techniques, the too large amount of evidence, and the lack of experience of arbitrators or counsel in handling construction disputes. Around the same time, the ICC Commission issued a report on arbitration and ADR in the construction industry that reminded the need for accrued case management and use of procedural techniques to control time and costs. It also highlighted the delicate issue of the party's legal cultures, notably in relation to expert and witness testimonies and document disclosure, the number of arbitrators composing the arbitral tribunals, and the form and content of submissions, which should be aligned with the amount in dispute and the party's legal backgrounds and expectations. Those are all interesting points. I mean, the background legal culture of the parties is often very important, as, of course, is that of the arbitrators. You know, a good example of that would be the tribunal's approach to delay and disruption claims. As we all know, many disputes involve a delay or disruption uh, aspect. And from a common law perspective, and I'm an English lawyer, resolution of those types of claims almost invariably involve the application of a detailed analysis. And in the UK or the USA, organisations such as the Society of Construction Law, uh, the SCL, or the Association for the Advancement of Cost Engineering, the AACE, have well-known recommended practices and and protocols for managing or analysing delays on projects. But but that approach isn't the same everywhere, which uh, can cause quite a culture shock, certainly for me. I definitely agree with that, Liam. In France, for example, these detailed analyses are generally not performed. But that being said, in, in 2017, the SCL delay and disruption protocol was first translated into French, and that was a huge step forward. And recently, the SCL also launched an international chapter with a quite active group in France. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we're seeing on the horizon in the year ahead is developments in the way that these industry bodies and organisations interact or their work is used by the parties that we deal with. I mean, there's potential development in that front on uh, some of the most commonly used standard form contracts. Obviously, there was a lot of interest in FIDIC 2017 when it came out. But in our experience, the uptake of that contract remains fairly slow. I mean, that may be somewhat attributable, I suppose, to the peculiar circumstances of, of the pandemic. But we are seeing some projects now let on that basis. I mean, having said that, the 99 form remains much more common for the time being. We regularly also see contracts let under the FIDIC 87 suite, especially in the Middle East. Um, now, it may be that the existence of the 27 suite is going to increasingly encourage people to upgrade from 87 to 99 in that region, but that uh, remains to be seen. In terms of NEC, we're still seeing NEC increasingly used in, in particular geographies where it's quite common, such as South Africa, Hong Kong, and so on. And in Britain, the NEC suite is a dominant form of contract for major infrastructure works, especially those led by the UK government. So in addition to the work that we've done over the years on NEC3, we're increasingly seeing NEC4 used, as I say, especially in the UK. Okay, thanks, Liam. Well, I think the last point to address is obviously the elephant in the room at the moment, and that's COVID. 
Um, it's obviously had a huge impact on the international construction and infrastructure industry um, with a lot of turbulence. But um, as industries go, it's one that knows how to take a punch and has sort of historically proven itself to be robust. And that's certainly uh, true of the recent um, situation. Uh, What was quite interesting is in the last year and a half, the industry has taken more of a collaborative approach. And we have been sort of assisting clients with a lot of temporary renegotiation of contracts. Um, So there wasn't the real spike in disputes that was at one stage anticipated. Um, It was also helped in no small part by governmental help and incentives that were designed to keep projects and the economy generally afloat. I think now that remains, we will see how that all develops um, and whether or not the spike that was anticipated is about to happen. And that segues um, very nicely now into taking our crystal balls and really just looking at um, what we think will be some of the key themes and trends um, looking into 2022 and just beyond. And of course, the first point there will be COVID. Yeah. And uh, as Peter says, we've seen uh, announcements of massive investment on infrastructure projects across the world in in no small part because governments want to spend their way out of the COVID downturn. That that includes expansion of the high-speed network in the UK and huge sums being spent by the government in China. But that's quite a common feature globally. It's not, not necessarily restricted to particular jurisdictions. That being said, we all know that a number of projects depend on funding by organisations such as the World Bank or the European Development Fund and so on. And uh, at times, those funds receive specialised funding from from things like the Green Climate Fund. And, you know, in that regard, we've noticed something of a trend for funders to require additional securities or make calls on bonds or or, or just be more proactive and, and interfering, frankly, in projects or also be more reluctant to fund projects, you know, because they are, you know, conscious of the ongoing uncertainty in the world economy. They may have had their fingers burnt on on, on projects which have been uh, affected by COVID. So so that's definitely a trend to be watched, because if that continues, that will be uh, something that definitely impacts the industry. In relation to infrastructures also, EU contractors have, having invested within the EU must keep in mind that the protections that were previously offered to them under investment treaties, whether they were BITs or even particularly in the energy sector under the Energy Charter Treaty, those protections are no longer available to them. This has two consequences. The first one is for the ongoing investments arbitration is no longer a valid dispute resolution method. If your procedure is ongoing or if your award has just been rendered, chances are it will not be enforceable within the EU. Indeed, following DCJ's decisions in 2018 in ACMEA and more recently in 2021 Comstroy, intra-EU arbitration based on these treaties are now invalid. So the EU's goal is clear, to have these types of disputes referred to a specialized EU investment court. But the problem is that this court has not been set up yet. So in the meantime, there is uncertainty and everyone is watching how arbitral tribunals will react and whether parties will try to have their awards against EU member states enforced outside of the EU, in London, for example, or in the United States. So, and this is the second point. It will be very interesting to see how investors will react 
for example, will they restructure their investments outside of the EU? A second option would be to take this lack of protection into account when structuring the financial aspects of their investment to incorporate these additional risks. A third option is to attempt to negotiate with states arbitration clauses to be inserted in the contracts, but this option will probably not be opened to all investors. So this is actually something to watch. One of the key things that we've seen during the course of the pandemic are problems revolving around shortages of uh, materials and or labour. Now, that there are numerous reasons for that. I mean, obviously, at a basic level, if production facilities have had to close their doors or social distancing has had to be observed or if ports have not been operating at their pre-pandemic capacity and so on, then that has a big knock-on effect. Uh, Similarly, the closing of borders due to COVID has meant that it's difficult to ensure the free movement of labour between different countries. And and there are also a number of country-specific issues which have arisen. I mean, that's arguably the case uh, to some extent in the UK with Brexit. But there are broader global trends as well. I mean, in the coming year, we expect the global shortage of materials to to be exacerbated somewhat by the fact that countries are trying to invest in infrastructure and build their way out of COVID in the way that we've that we've just discussed. Now, th- these kind of supply chain issues have a link to some of the trends that we've seen pre-COVID. Prior to the pandemic, an important new trend in the construction industry was the move towards modular methods of construction, i.e., you know, manufacturing components off-site, then assembling them at the site, a bit like a, a giant Lego set. Now. The cost and time savings involved with modular construction can be significant, but a lot of people have had their their fingers burnt during the pandemic because their components are stuck in production facilities on the other side of the world. And we expect to see more disputes involving those kinds of issues in in the year ahead. Totally agree, uh, Liam. Certainly expect to see an increase in claims generally. When over the last 18 months or so, uh, there's been a real element with people just trying to to get through and uh, putting or parking disputes in a, a deep freeze. But now we're certainly seeing more and more disputes coming out of the freezer, and they often um, share some similar flavours. So the kind of things we're seeing at the moment are the project was already in distress before the pandemic. Um, how does that impact the claim? Um, yeah, contractors who didn't follow the contractual notice procedures during the pandemic, so how does that affect them? They did a side deal to get through the worst of the pandemic. Um, Are their hands now tied? And how do they put together a persuasive claim for loss and productivity? Um, And certainly there are going to be some intense disputes that turn on causation issues because they'll try to wrap things up with um, delays and disruption that were in existence pre-COVID with those that happened because of COVID. And then the obvious um, entanglement of quantum issues. Um, Another thing is that when the pandemic struck, I think many people, um, myself included, were expecting to see a big uptick in the number of insolvencies. Um, But the reality has been really quite different. And incredibly, there have actually been fewer construction insolvencies in the last year in certain jurisdictions um, than in previous years. And by way of example, take construction insolvencies in the UK, which fell by about a third to their lowest level for over a decade. And of course, we're all breathing a sigh of relief on that front. Uh, many governments across the world have been pumping money into the construction industry by way of uh, furlough schemes, grants from the government, tax relief, and so on, 
in addition to the acceleration of major infrastructure spending that we've already mentioned. All of this said, um, we've worked closely with our insolvency colleagues in relation to a number of cases in the last year or so. And there's a feeling in the insolvency and restructuring world that there will be a growth in workload in the year ahead as government aid schemes um, come to an end. And this is obviously a key topic from a construction arbitration perspective, because um, there's no point in arbitrating against a party if one is ultimately unable to recover against them. Or on the other side of things, if you are a company with distressed project or, uh, or a subsidiary, then insolvency law can be a useful tool in your armory. So let's turn to the next topic. The next point we have identified is what I like to refer to as green construction. This is a strong movement which appears to be taking two different directions. First, the performance of always greener projects, green buildings, smarter, greener cities, infrastructures, etc., which are carbon free. The second direction is minimizing the impact of construction itself on the environment the decarbonization of the industry to achieve net zero projects and the use of cleaner technologies. But we should also keep in mind that all projects entail an environmental risk from a construction site for which land permits are required or soil is contaminated during the works to the alleged expropriation of a foreign investor due to a state changing its legislation to impose environmental standards. In infrastructure projects, such as, for example, water treatment plants, wind farms, extraction of natural resources or plants, notably in the energy sector, it is also not uncommon to have specific local environmental regulations that need to be taken into account or the intervention of administrative decisions that impact the parties' contractual arrangements. Those are the things that we have seen exist. So we are bound to see more and more disputes arising out of green constructions to which arbitrators will be less and less insensitive in the future. The question arises is as to whether we will see climate change and decarbonization-related disputes specifically. Well, as a matter of fact, they've already started. In the solar sector, numerous claims have been brought by investors against European countries such as Spain, the Czech Republic, Poland, Bulgaria. But these countries had adopted legislations repelling incentives for the promotion of solar energy, which were deemed contrary to EU law. Another emblematic case that comes to mind in this regard is the Vattenfall case which arose out of Germany's decision to close its nuclear plants in the aftermath of the Fukushima catastrophe. So we are also seeing a big increase in the number of decommissioning-related disputes, both in the nuclear world, but also in relation to fossil fuel infrastructure. Indeed, we are working, for example, on the North Sea matter at the moment that stems from the closing of a field and the decommissioning of related rigs and pipelines. Considering the strong pushes by governments to move away from fossil fuels, to prioritize nuclear, wind, solar, and other greener energies, as well as hydrogen, there is no doubt that we will see more and more disputes and arbitrations in this regard. Another key point is that you know, all parties are keen to see greater efficiency in construction dispute resolution. And in anticipation of the claims coming out of the deep freeze, as we 
hopefully begin to emerge from the pandemic. There's currently a great deal of reflection on the role and evidentiary weight of factual and expert witnesses in arbitration. And for example, in certain jurisdictions, there are debates currently as to whether arbitrators could benefit from the appointment of technical assistance. So, so those kinds of developments are certainly uh, things to watch out for. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has made virtual hearings commonplace. They're now here to stay, which can be great for reducing time and costs of hearing, but can also have downsides at times. Uh, a good example of that is cross-examination of witnesses or experts isn't really quite quite the same as it was pre-pandemic. And so one thing that remains to be seen is the extent to which we move back from virtual hearings to in-person hearings. As I say, hopefully uh, things begin to change. In relation to other dispute resolution um, or avoidance mechanisms, what we're increasingly seeing as well is a situation where DABs are abused by some employers. We see sometimes a situation where an employer salami slices a dispute and forces you know a contractor to use or go through the DAB process you know and again and again in a, in a way which isn't terribly efficient and sometimes feels a little bit like a, a war of attrition and so uh, it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues I mean at least in part because of those types of shenanigans we've seen an increase in uh, interest in alliancing and partnering to some extent that's familiar from years past and of course the emphasis on co- cooperation and so on was a key factor in the genesis and promotion of the NEC3 contracts certainly um, in its origins in the UK However, we know from experience uh, that fine words on alliancing and partnering in the contract don't always translate into uh, actual collaborative working that that we'd all like to see. And so we certainly recommend that parties to contracts always have uh, at least one eye to what might happen when the honeymoon period is over on a project. And and, and one last point that we'd like to make uh, in relation to the future in our look ahead relates to diversity in construction arbitration. For historical reasons, uh, arbitrators have often been drawn from a fairly limited number of geographies, often in in Europe or or North America. And we expect uh, and indeed hope that in the years ahead, we're going to see a greater number of arbitrators from uh, a plurality of jurisdictions, as well as an increase in female arbitrators, expert witnesses and, and so on. You know, we strongly feel that a broadening and deepening of the talent pool in the arbitration world can only be a good thing. And and hopefully that should spur on the move to greater efficiency in the process. Thank you, um, Liam. And thank you, Vanessa. I think that's unfortunately all that we have time for today. But we uh, hope um, that we have um, given some insights into what we see as being some of the key themes and trends um, in the coming year or years and we are certainly on board ready to navigate the challenges um, together with our clients and also optimize on opportunities so thank you everybody for listening and uh, stay tuned for the next installment of our arbitral insights podcast and the horizons mini series thank you arbitral insights is a reed smith production our producer is ali mccardle For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email joseasdegaraga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. 
This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.